Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you for that introduction, Suzanne. Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Our format will typically feature interviews with people who have valuable insights about how unchanging principles apply in our daily lives. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to give you a brief explanation of what this podcast is all about and why I am doing this. I spent much of my life in the United States Air Force, and I was honored to serve in that fine organization. I was involved in engineering, science, program management, personnel management, and other things that the Air Force or other services needed. I now have an equally high honor working for a family charitable foundation. We give grants to organizations that are helping people in various ways in the name of Christ and for the purpose of encouraging people in their walk with Christ or in new relationship with Him. My engineering and scientific mindset means that I am analytical, and some would say analytical to a fault, but one thing I have learned is that science is observation, and observation reveals hints about reality, and reality is obdurate. So if there were a four-word motto for the Core Principles podcast, it would be this. That, that is, is. Now I'm honored to welcome to the Core Principles podcast, Scott Allen, who is the president of Disciple Nations Alliance. Scott, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Great, Clay. Great to be with you. How are things in Oregon today? Uh, it's beautiful, actually. It's uh, just gorgeous outside right now, and uh, it's good to be here. I'm normally in Arizona, but it's good to be in the great state of Oregon. I'd like to introduce you to our listeners. Can you give our listeners a little background about how you and Mr. Miller and Mr. Moffitt started Disciple Nations Alliance and why? Sure. Yeah, we started... Uh, this ministry called Disciple Nations Alliance 20 years ago now, just over 20 years ago. And uh, our heart um, and calling, the three of us, uh, has been towards the poor and um, kind of Christian biblical responses to overcoming poverty and injustice in the world. For many years, we worked with the organization Food for the Hungry. The reason that we began DNA was because we, we were looking at the rapid growth of the church particularly in the global south, in places like uh, Asia, Africa, Latin America. Its church is growing very rapidly there, which is very exciting. Uh, yet what we noticed was that in these contexts of poverty that they were in, they didn't have a, a theology that um, empowered them to deal with the brokenness and the injustice and the poverty in their own, in their own contexts. And very often the message that the relief and development community that I was a part of was sending was, uh, don't worry about that. Just preach the gospel and we'll take care of the poor. And we felt like that was really the wrong message, that um, that God had put these uh, brothers and sisters in Christ in these communities to be his hands and feet, his answer to the biggest problems that these communities were facing. And so we began a teaching, to uh, a biblical teaching on justice and overcoming poverty, um, really rooted in a biblical worldview that uh, would empower them to take leadership and ownership over the problems in their own communities. And so today we're just continuing to try to get 
the message out around the world of the power of biblical truth to overcome poverty and to build healthy and prosperous nations. When I met with you a while ago, you were embarking on a project of your own to write a book about 12 words. And uh, I know that for you then, uh, as for me, precision of language is very important. How did this word justice, and your new book is going to be called Biblical Justice versus Social Justice, how did that word justice take on uh, its own life and a book all to itself? Yeah, well, thanks, Clay, uh, for asking that question. The uh, Yeah, the project um, on words has been something that's been on our heart for many years. Um, there's a truism that my, my mentor, Darrow Miller, taught me many years ago, and he it, it goes like this. If you want to change culture, you begin by changing language. And uh, I believe that. Uh, the words are very, very powerful. As Christians, we can see that simply based on the fact that God himself is described as the word. And so that's worthy of deep and powerful, profound reflection. Uh, the power of words and language and the fact that we are made in God's image uniquely to use words and language to not just communicate, but to actually build up nations and cultures. One of the ways that the church has done this historically is by conveying the truth about words. Words have a true meaning, and that the, the true meaning of these words comes from God himself and from his word. When we communicate a word out of the scriptures like compassion, which means to suffer together with another person, that's a very powerful concept that you don't find in the cultures of this fallen world, they don't come up with those ideas on their own, you know. And the same is, the same is true of freedom or of justice or of love. Uh, you know, the way that the Bible defines love, for example, is to sacrificially uh, seek and do what is in the best interest or the good of other people, of our neighbors. These are powerful ideas that are rooted in the Bible. And very often, I think, as the church, we don't understand that one of the most powerful things we can do to change broken communities and broken lives is to just help Christians understand the truth of these words from the scripture. The reason that I, I got to the word justice and I felt like it needed a full treatment as its own book, simply because there's a, there's a tremendous onslaught in Western culture right now um, to redefine that word justice, you know, to put forward what I call a counterfeit justice. But my main concern is for my brothers and sisters in Christ, my, my fellow Christians, to, to see clearly the distinction between what justice really is and, and what's being put forward now in the culture. That is a noble challenge to take on, for sure. It, it is good to start with a common understanding of terms. And I noticed uh, you quote uh, John Stone Street, who works at the Colson Center. He said, it's, uh, it's no good having the same vocabulary if we're using different dictionaries. So would you uh, share with us your definition of justice and biblical justice and social justice? Basically, biblical justice is conformity to a standard of goodness or righteousness, and it's, it's conforming or upholding oneself or one's society to that standard. Another way of saying it is, is it's giving people their due as image bearers of God. It requires a standard of goodness or righteousness that is transcendent, in other words, you know, beyond the realm of human standards or human ideas of what is good. It comes from God itself. You used 
an example in your book of a plumb line when you're talking about that standard that you mentioned? Yeah, that idea, that's not my idea. You know, one of the things that we we have found a powerful tool ha- has been William Webster's dictionary. Webster's first dictionary is very powerful. You can still access it online and you can buy copies of it. I recommend any Christian to do that because Webster defined words intentionally biblically. And he did that because In other words, he went back to the Bible to to get the definition of these words. He did that because he knew that the United States, as this kind of experiment in liberty, was only going to be successful if it had that foundation, that biblical foundation. We needed to teach our children the true or the biblical definitions of these words that needed to be part of them in order for them to be self-governing. Anyways, he was the one, when I looked up the definition of justice in his dictionary, he said, he brought to my mind that that, uh, image of a plumb line. The word just itself, it means straight. It actually means straight. Justice requires that plumb line, that kind of standard of, of what is good or what is right that goes beyond kind of human standards. And when we get to that counterfeit social justice, uh, what, what do you mean when you use that term? The phrase social justice, it has deep roots actually in the Christian community, but I would say that since the 1960s in the United States, and in particularly the last 10 years, social justice is the effort of the oppressed to overthrow the systems and the structures put in place by the oppressors in order to have an equality of outcome. If those words and phrases sound similar to kind of Marxist ideas, that's not by accident. This uh, kind of ideology of social justice has roots in uh, Marxist thinking. So it has to do with overthrowing structures and systems that are deemed to be oppressive in kind of in a revolutionary style or approach to towards the end of an equality of outcome. And we see the revolution happening right now. You tie the uh, Marxism to an organization that's very newsworthy lately, and they use as their name this unassailable true principle, three simple words that Black Lives Matter, that is so true and almost universally championed, not a disputed concept, but the organization itself, you note that their mission statement They want to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another. So Karl Marx would be proud. But what what is this uh, group BLM really about? Yeah, that's right, Clay. Black Lives Matter is, if you, it's not hard. Anyone can go onto their website or do just a little bit of research into the three women who found it. And they're very far left, neo-Marxist, very open and very proud about that. You often hear them using the words deconstruct, uh, dismantle, overthrow. I mean, these, and they're not just talking about like a particular administration. They want to fundamentally upend our, our very form of government that's rooted in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. They, they want to uproot that. They want to overthrow that. Now, you've described uh, this Marxist philosophy as a uh, religious meta-narrative. What, what is so dangerous about that? Yeah, Jonathan Haidt, who's a sociologist at New York University, Jewish guy, but he, he many years ago started saying something's happening on our college campuses that isn't just, it goes beyond just, you know, the, the battle over ideas. It really is kind of this emerging new religion. And I, I really agree with that. I think I'm convinced that this is kind of what's happening in the United States today and, and really the West more broadly, is that Christianity has been under attack for a long time. Christianity has been the defining worldview that gave rise to so much of the West, the ideas of the Bible, 
the Judeo-Christian ideas were so fundamental to, to the West being what it is today. But those ideas have been under attack for a long time, you know, and through the Enlightenment and these other periods of our history, secularism has kind of taken over. The problem with secularism is secularism is just basically saying it's an abdication of what Christianity is. There is no God. You know, everything is material, but it doesn't provide any kind of, people are religious by their very nature, and it doesn't, there's no meaning in secularism or atheism. There's no purpose. Well, that's not sustainable for people, and they need answers to those fundamental human questions. Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? These basic worldview questions. Ideological social justice, I think, is a religion. It's the religious alternative that's coming onto the fore right now as a replacement for the old Judeo-Christian worldview. In other words, you've got a lot of people in the West now have never been exposed to the Bible. They don't know it. They've never been to church. And they've been taught that there is no meaning, this kind of secular thing. And it's not sustainable. And so they're hungry. They're crying out for meaning and purpose. And here comes this new ideology that gives them meaning, that gives them purpose, that gives them a sense of of a morality, um, a rightness, and something to live for, and so they're just they're just flocking to it. And I, I, I'm convinced that that's what's that's what's happening right now. So you described it as ultimately atheistic, and I guess we can see from there if it's an alternative to the Judeo-Christian ethic uh, that that makes sense. But you also uh, say that ultimately Marxism and social justice are totalitarian, and you quote a 2018 article where a writer who used the pseudonym Barrett Wilson said, quote, social justice is a surveillance culture and a snitch culture, unquote. So a lot of people, whether they really care much about Judeo-Christian ethics or uh, religion in public society, might not really be keen to that aspect, uh, totalitarianism and surveillance and snitching. Can you elaborate on some of that? Yeah, the, the, the snitching, I mean, you've probably become familiar with that phrase, cancel culture. I mean, that's what's happening right now in the news. It's, it's incredible. It's happening not just with celebrities, but with everyday people who aren't kind of towing the line on this prevailing narrative, this prevailing narrative of social justice or ideological social justice. You know, the biblical idea, the old biblical idea made room for freedom. It's for freedom's sake that Christ sets you free. The Bible has a foundation for human freedom, and it's unique in that way. Other ideologies don't. You know, if you don't have room for freedom, you, you devolve into power, and that's what we're seeing with this new ideological social justice. It's using levers of power, coercion, fear, intimidation to prevail in order to make this particular narrative dominant in a society. We're not used to that as Americans. That's not something that comes out of our, our history. Our history, because of Judeo-Christian ideas, has respected the individual and the right of the individual, free speech. What we're seeing is that those things cannot be sustained once those foundations are removed. This ideological social justice has no foundation for those things. So you've described them, the, these two competing views, as irreconcilable. But in your book, Biblical Justice versus Social Justice, coming out this fall, you do talk about you know paths forward. I want to talk just a moment about unity. I am an engineer, so I deal with math and science. To me, the word unity refers to the number one. You say, uh, I'm going to quote you from your book here, ideological social justice can only divide because it has no basis for unity. It can only segregate us into competing 
competing tribes pitted against each other in an endless power struggle. And we're seeing this played out in real time in Seattle. This autonomous zone that they set up, one of the first things they demanded was racial segregation. How do we restore or achieve unity? Clay, I would say that this, I'm going to come back to the church here because the followers of Christ God's given us his book, and his book is the only solid foundation for healthy lives, prosperous communities, and flourishing nations. It's the only one. And what it means to be salt and light, I believe, for the church is to uphold the truths that do those things from the scriptures. We have to be people of the book. We have to be countercultural. We have to continue to bring those truths into the society. One of the things that grieves my heart right now is that so many Christians, I think because of this Trojan horse aspect, are going along with the ideology of social justice. But on this issue of of, of what does the Bible have to say that brings unity, a, a tremendous amount. First of all, all people, regardless of their sex and their gender, their skin color, all people are made in the image of God. All people have intrinsic worth and dignity because of that. That's an incredibly unifying message. Another unifying message in the scriptures is that all people are fallen and sinful and need redemption and need forgiveness. That's also an incredibly unifying message. Ideological social justice doesn't teach those things. It teaches that, you know, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the famous Russian novelist, um, he had a famous saying. He said, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And before he said that, he said, it doesn't run between political parties. It doesn't run through races. You know, it runs through every human heart. Ideological social justice doesn't believe that. It believes that it runs through races. And so you can't have unity, you know, in that kind of a worldview. It leads straight to tribalism. And I I tell you that uh, I've been around the world enough and I've taught enough in places like Sudan and Rwanda that you do not want. That's a that is a terrible evil that you do not want to to see spreading in the United States. And yet this ideology is is actively promoting it right now. We have, so the church has to stand against that. The church has to remind people that no, you know, the line between good and evil doesn't run between black and white. It runs, or gay and straight, or male and female. It runs between, you know, it runs through every human heart. We all are broken. We all need God's forgiveness. We're all made in his image. We have a message that unites. And also upholds, by the way, diversity. Our, our, the biblical message is powerful in that it creates that tender balance between unity and diversity, which is all healthy societies need to, to thrive. And you describe those two things, diversity and unity, as, as complementary. I really like that. I appreciate one of the things that you say in the book that I really uh, wanted to make sure I quoted, and it goes right to what you were talking about uh, with the role of the church. You said that, uh, quote, God's mercy and justice meet at the cross, end quote. So uh, I hope that that is something that uh, listeners and readers of your book will latch on to. That's an important truth. Uh, you also offer a, uh, a step towards solution, saying that uh, offering ideological social justice adherence a better story, a true story, is a, a way forward. Can you explain how we might best do that? Absolutely. I think Christians... When we see something destructive like this new set of ideas that's coming full force into the culture, our first reaction very often is to be opposed to it. And that's a good reaction. We have to be opposed to these things. But that only gets you so far. You can't just be opposed to something 
you have to offer a better alternative. I love what Nancy, I'm a big fan of Nancy Piercy, the Christian uh, worldview thinker and uh, theologian. Uh, she works at Houston Baptist and has written many great books. Um, she says the, the, she says something along the lines of the church has to get beyond criticizing culture and get back to creating culture. And I, I just love that idea. We, we are culture creators rooted in biblical truth that, that actually is creative. In other words, it creates, it doesn't destroy. And we have to put forward to people a better alternative, one that's more humane, that's more loving, that's, that's gracious, that's forgiving, that creates human unity. They have to see that. They have, in other words, they have to see the biblical worldview. They have to see the biblical story. They have to see it lived out in our lives. And they have to be attracted to that. So it's not just enough to say, this is wrong, this is wrong, bad. We have to do that, but it's not enough. We have to offer alternatives that are better. And I just think that's such an important challenge for us as the church. And I really appreciate it that you included a story uh, from Corey Ten Boom uh, of reconciliation and forgiveness and grace. I remember reading that same story, that account uh, in the 90s. Uh, I was in a Sunday school class and... I should say I tried to read that account <laughs> because I yeah, broke really down utterly. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Tears. Yeah. And it's so now as we're witnessing in America, this increasingly violent revolution happening right now, uh, can you foresee us reconciling and unifying and giving each other grace? Uh, are we going to make it? Uh, I don't know. Scott Allen, I'm, I'm begging you for a little hope here. You know, God is going to win in the end. Uh, we know that. He is going to prevail. Justice is going to prevail. These are the times for which we're born. And these are the times we have to stand fast as the church. And part of me is very energized by that. You know, I thank God that, you know, we I live in a time where our lives can really count because we can fight in a significant way for what's true and good in a really important time in our nation's history and in the history of the world. Um, how that's going to work itself out, uh, only God knows. But I know a lot of Christians are really discouraged right now, and there's real reason to be discouraged because ideological social justice has so deeply penetrated our culture, our systems of education, our institutions, um, those who advocate for it. The organization Black Lives Matter, for example, has a multi-million dollar PR budget funded by people like George Soros and the Tides Foundation and these far left groups. You know, it's like, wow, what chance do we have? We're, we're up against a Goliath. Oh, yeah. By the way, God loves it when these weak little Davids come on the scene with a smooth stone and trust in God and his word. And he loves those situations. He loves those situations where you've got Peter, you know, an uneducated fisherman against the Sanhedrin. I mean, there's so many stories like that in scripture. You know, many of them. So I take a lot of hope from that, you know, but I just want to make a plea to our brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, hold fast to God's word, trust in him. He's more powerful. Psalm 2 says that when the nations scheme against God and against his anointed, his people, he laughs. He's established Christ on the throne and Christ is still on the throne. Amen but I just, that. we need to be faithful, you know, to Christ and really believe in him and fight for what's good for our neighbors. You know, the ideological social justice, it sounds good because it's talking about justice and equality. It is destructive and we need to fight against it. And we need to put forward what real justice is because it's good for our neighbors. It's loving. We have to love our neighbors like we've never done before, including those that have been caught up in these ideas. Well, thank you so much. And you you use that word equality there finishing up. And yes, of course, uh, people love that concept. Uh, I propose that equality truly means that 
God's rules apply equally to all of us. That's biblical equality. And there we can have unity as well. Um, Well, Scott Allen, Disciple Nations Alliance, uh, looking forward to the release of your book this fall. Hope everyone will pick up a copy of Biblical Justice versus Social Justice. And thank you so much uh, for being my inaugural guest on the Core Principles podcast. I'm honored. Keep up the good work. Clay, thanks very much. Thanks and have a great day. You too. Now it's time for our special historical segment, featuring a practical example of how core principles are applied. On the 30th of June, 1864, President Abraham Lincoln signed into law the Internal Revenue Act, which increased taxes on many items to raise funds for fighting the Civil War. Income tax rates at that time ranged from 5 to 10%. If we look all the way back to the years before Christ, we find a temple tax of approximately two days' wages, which every male over the age of 20 was required to pay. This tax was not only to maintain the temple, but also an atonement for sin, according to the book of Exodus chapter 30, verse 16. Later, Jesus, being without sin, declared himself exempt from this particular tax. In a fascinating exchange with Peter, Recorded in chapter 17 of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, Jesus asked his friend the fisherman, From whom do the kings of the earth collect taxes, their own sons or the sons of others? Peter answered that it was the latter. Christ told Peter to go fishing, and the first fish he caught had in its mouth a coin worth exactly double the required tax. Jesus said this would pay for both himself and for Peter, noting that he was not obliged to pay money for atonement, having committed no sin. We pay taxes to our government, but we should never be dependent on government as we are dependent on the Lord. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.